So in this series, we've been expanding upon just one remark from Easter Sunday, that when John and Peter first saw the evidence of the empty tomb, they believed, but they did not understand. It says there in John 20, they did not yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Why? Why must Jesus rise? Last week, we jumped back in time to the Last Supper, an earlier part of John's Gospel. And Jesus, again, is explaining why. In fact, for most of the Gospels, Jesus is explaining why. And if you turn with me, please, to John 16, 16, here he is again. Jesus speaking, a little while, he says, you will see me no longer, and again, a little while, and you will see me. The Greek word for little while is micron, the tiny sort of measure of time. In the tiniest measure of time, I will go away. But then in another tiny measure of time, I will be back, says Jesus. Now we have an advantage because we have this bulletin. We have these six little boxes that neatly describe the the Well, five boxes describe the good news. One describes the bad news right now, doesn't it? We have this rather excellent sermon series graphic. We can get it straight away. We understand the timeline. John 16, the Last Supper. The cross really is just a little while after that, a few hours in fact. And the resurrection is a little while after that, just three days if you count them like a first century Jew, just Two days, if you count them like most civilizations today, and just one day, if you count them like the United States Parcel Service, when their guaranteed Mother's Day delivery is arriving on Tuesday. And they say, I know it was due on Saturday, but we don't work on a Sunday, and we only miss Monday. It will be with you on Tuesday, and so really that's kind of like being on time, right? No, it is, in fact, late, even if... Theologically, I have to concede it is only a little late. The point is this. Jesus says, I'm going to go away very soon, and then very soon I will return. So, verse 17, some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. The way John repeats this statement several times shows just how important it is, but also I think how confused they are about it. Verse 18, what does he mean? We do not know what he is talking about. They're confused. Jesus is not confused. He knows what they're thinking, verse 19, even though what they say is just muttered amongst themselves, verse 17. So human, isn't it? Jesus is explaining something of critical importance here. He hasn't even finished explaining it, and they're already talking over him amongst themselves, saying, "Uh, what? I don't get it. Do you get it? What's he talking about? I don't know. doesn't make any sense to me. Can we do something else? What's on your phone? Uh, Prophetically and compassionately, Jesus, knowing their questions, knowing the reasons why they've got their questions and all of the underlying anxieties that they have, he says this, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you. It's a a phrase or a device that he uses when he needs to reset and say the same thing a different way. He says this when people are confused. He says this when his sayings are difficult and he needs to emphasize, no, it is true. 
the fact it didn't click immediately doesn't mean it's wrong. It really is true. Our men are men in the original language. The Greek even mirroring the Aramaic and the, and the Hebrew are men. It is true. It's not just true, it's truly true. And uh, then he says, I say. Lots of different words he could have used for speech, but he chooses the, the form of, uh, of speech that is systematic and is clear and is didactic and is sensible. Something sensible is about to come out of his mouth. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. It is going to happen. You are not going to like it. You're not going to get it. You're not going to like that you don't get it. The bad guys, though, they're going to love it because they're going to think they've won. But although you will be sorrowful, your sorrow will turn into joy. It is a promise. The word will is a word that God uses in the Bible when he makes a covenant promise. It's covenant language. It's a declaration from God himself that something is going to happen. What he's doing here, knowing prophetically and compassionately all of the things going on in their hearts and in their heads, is he places the confusion and the brokenness and the fear of Good Friday into the context of the revelation and the joy and the hope of Easter Sunday. I will go, he says. I will come back. You will not get it. Then you will get it and you will be overjoyed. There's a promise. It's a promise from God. There will be pain. There will be grief. There will be lamentation, mourning, heaviness, sadness, unease. That's what these words mean. All words to do with death. There will be death and there will be grief but it will all be transformed into joy. It's a brilliant teaching. It's timeless. It's really timely right now, isn't it? But it's a great teaching. He sets up for the disciples a disturbing idea, and he messes with the way that they see the world. Then he pays very careful attention to how they react. And then he patiently restates his point another way, turning up the volume a little, and then he gives them comfort about how it ends, even though he knows that they will be confused about it in the midst, and then he even paints them a picture to drive it home. His parable, there is a parable here, a mini one, I suppose, is a fascinating image to have chosen as well, because his illustration comes in the context of life. He's talking about death, he illustrates it, with life. What is it like to be in pain and to find joy? What is it like to be stuck in the middle of something that you don't quite understand? Maybe something where you're saying, what is going on? Maybe something you wish you'd not got yourselves into. Maybe something where you're screaming at the people around you, why have you done this to me? Well, for example, he says, let's talk about childbirth. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. That last hour of labor, if you've watched it or had it, you will know, is really hard. This, this moment of giving birth is the moment where every bloke looks at his wife if he has not done so already and accepts the fact that she could totally have him in a fight. 
You know, I went to get some blood work done at Quest Diagnostics a little while ago, and I fainted on the floor just getting some blood work done. To, to add insult to injury, or actually more injury to injury, they tried to revive me with some peanut butter, which is just a, a most unseemly time that was. The, the dude, I, I, I speculate, I mean, was it a nurse? The dude looked like a roadie from ZZ Top, just came in and broddled around in my arm with a needle for a while. It was, it was horrific, and then force-fed me peanut butter. Um, awful. This is America. I should sue. Uh, but it's just like a little tiny needle. That's all it was. In contrast, when Cat gave birth, they rigged up a machine to her with a needle that goes up and down to measure the severity of her contractions, and the needle fell off the page at the top. They had to go to the British Geological Society to obtain uh, uh, the machine they used to measure earthquakes, just to gauge how severe her contractions really were. I'm embellishing this story only a little. And nonetheless, she gave birth in near complete silence, and then thanked the midwife politely as she delivered the placenta. I mean, that is a very scary thing for any bloke to watch. It's like, you know, this is, this is a serious woman. For normal folk, giving birth is traumatic. For some of us, giving birth is an incredibly dangerous moment. We're very blessed with our modern technology, but, but birth giving at the time of Jesus was a, a traumatic and, and painful and dangerous experience. My own mother died as she was giving birth to me and was resuscitated. And it's, it's not the British Mothering Sunday today, actually. Theirs was earlier this year. But as a, as a transatlantic family, Mum, happy Mother's Day. Thank you for doing that. My dad, at the time, went down the pub. Uh, but that's another story. Uh, clearly, people forget the trauma of childbirth. They forget the pain. They forget the difficulties. They forget the questions that arise in that moment and the needle going off the page. They forget all of that. We know this is true because many people do it again. The joy of having a baby eclipses the pain that people feel in that moment. And Jesus, taking this wonderful, timeless illustration, says to them in verse 22, so also, in the same way, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will, you could underline that word, rejoice. Will is the covenant language of God. It is a promise from God. They are suffering right now, but their suffering will be temporary. And in just a little while, it will turn into joy. It will be transformed. They will see that this pain that they were going through was in fact necessary in order to bring about life. He must rise from the dead. Christ's death has a purpose. It is propitiatory. That means it takes something on. It is expiatory. That means it wipes something away. It is substitutionary. It means that it exchanges something. Judgment and the penalty of death that we deserve for our sin falls on Christ. And we have fallen short of his standard so many times, but all of that falls upon him. It becomes his. That's why he must die. But the vindication that life and his life brings forth from the tomb becomes ours. That's why he must rise. He dies for us and he rises for us. 
That's the nature of this exchange. He takes on our death and he gives us his life. And what this means is that you could add up all of the weight of all of the sin, of all of the world done everywhere and at all times, of all people in all places and all times, and all of that sin, if you could picture such a thing, would nonetheless be overwhelmed by the cross and by the grave because Christ Jesus is God and he is bigger than your sin and the grace of the cross overwhelms your sin and the power of the broken grave does as well. It leads you into life. Jesus is God. His grace is greater than our sin. His life is greater than than ours. His suffering is greater than ours. And he killed it all. And he exchanged it for life. And verse 22 says, no one will take your joy from you. How could they? It comes from God. How could they take it away? They didn't give it. He did. Now, if you were with us for worship last week, when, when I was leading, you'll have noticed that at the end, as I was saying the prayers, I began to cry as I was praying in this room. And it was not uh, some big charismatic experience. It was not that I was overwhelmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, and sometimes in this room, we are frequently as we receive bread and wine. That seems to be where we're overwhelmed with, with the Spirit. Uh, that was not what was going on. It, it was, in fact, just sorrow. It was really, really deep sadness that overwhelmed me last week, this time last week. I, I was praying. I started to think about you. I started to think about my church and how much I miss you all. I started to think about how powerless I am to do anything about the situation that we're in. And then I started to think about my family, and I thought about how I, I can't get to see them. And as you watched me, you might have been aware of just how embarrassed and exposed it, I felt to stand here on the internet, you know, you know, crying like that. Normally, if we feel we look silly, no one films it, but they were that day. And I, I don't need to be embarrassed because this is church. I know this. In fact, it's my job to say that to you when you feel embarrassed. Um, I know that some of you found my breakdown helpful, which is lovely. <laughs> you know, great. Uh, I'm glad that blessed you. But uh, hopefully you also noticed what I was doing as I became overwhelmed. Hopefully you noticed. I, I don't want to say this, but go back and watch it if you didn't. <laughs> but, you know, hopefully you noticed that as I started to feel embarrassed and broken, I started to preach to myself. Hopefully you noticed in my prayers, I just took us through five of these little boxes as I prayed. I, I proclaimed the gospel to myself because I was breaking down on camera. That is the aim of this series, to empower us to place our present suffering into the context of a greater hope, into the context of the good news. The graphic makes this incredibly clear. We start with this virus. And then we place it into the context of five considerably more powerful images. Boxes two and three, the cross and the resurrection, do enough for us to show us the power of Jesus Christ to transform our situations. But boxes four, five, and six just show us that there's even more to come. The passage that we're in today really is the cross and the resurrection. It's boxes two and three, but there's a little bit of a hint, I think, 
uh, some of the series to come. Go back to verse 17, for example. Note, although, the initial conversation at the Last Supper is about boxes two and three, the cross and the resurrection. A little while I'll go, a little while I'll return. It's clear what that is. But the disciples pick up on something else that Jesus had said earlier. I am going to the Father. That is not something that happens on the cross when he dies or something that happens at the resurrection when he comes out of the tomb. This is what happens when he ascends. That is our sermon on the 24th, the Sunday after the ascension, box number four, the throne. That is yet to come. Jesus' illustration about childbirth. That is an interesting one as well. Because in Jewish thinking, childbirth was was an image of the messianic age, that time when the Messiah had come, but before the end of the world. That is box five, or at least, if you're going to be really picky, it is the gap between boxes five and six. Now, the last days, the Pentecostal days, the days of the Spirit, the days of fire. And then in verse 23, Jesus talks about a day. He says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. The scholars are completely divided about what the day is. So some say, this day, what is it? What day is Jesus talking about? This day when things are going to be good. When is the day? Some say, well, the day is box number three. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's the locked room. It's the day when Jesus breathes his spirit onto the disciples and they get it. They have a revelation. Others say, no, 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 that's, that's not enough of a day because they were still goofing around. It was some other time after that, probably Pentecost, box number five, the fire, when the Spirit descended more fully on them and they began to proclaim the good news. Some say, no, you're all wrong. The day, singular, is the day of his return. The day when he remakes the heavens and the earth, box number six. The day when, as Jesus says himself, We will have nothing left to ask of him, and our joy will be full, as it says there in verse 24. Who is right? Well, not surprisingly, I like the scholars that disagree with all of them. I think Jesus is trying to make us look at far more than just one box right here. I think in this passage, Jesus is trying to get us to look at the whole of the story, the whole of the good news, and to place our present suffering here into the whole context of the Christian worldview. Everything from his incarnation through to his return, all at once, all of the boxes. Look, Jesus said he would die, and he said he would rise, and he said he would ascend, and he said that he would give his spirit, and he did, and he did, and he did, and he did. He did all of these things. Therefore, when the same Jesus says that he will return, we know that he will. It is a covenant promise. It is a guarantee. Our present brokenness is real, but it comes in the context of a far greater reality. We're privileged to see that he's done all of these things except for one. And thus right now we live in the power not only of what he has done, but also in the power of what he will do in all space and time. We live in the light of the cross 
and the resurrection and his enthronement and in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the guarantee that he will return. Here's what I think is going on. He will come again to fix this broken world until he does. And we live in this gap. The resurrection is the only hope for this broken world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the the truth is that many of us are suffering acutely right now. And at the same time as that is going on, many of us are just suffering from a a low-lying anxiety that pervades and and hangs around. And Father, interspersed with this, there are moments of joy and moments of your kingdom breaking into our lives. And and that is the nature of this broken time that we are in. Signs of the kingdom, signs of your return, and and fruit from what you've already achieved. And we're in this mixed up mess. And so, Father, all we can do is pray for more. We do pray for more of your Holy Spirit to pour upon us. We pray for a greater realisation of what it is that you have achieved, and thus what it is you have promised you will do will come to be. Father, empower us in our weakness, we ask. In the majestic name of Jesus Christ, amen.